session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number, 310 0555. Let's get to the books of the week. I didn't do a show Monday. The book for this week that I'll talk about on this coming Monday show is Probable Impossibilities by Alan Lightman. Probable Impossibilities, Musings on Beginnings and Endings. Uh, Alan Lightman also wrote a book called Einstein's Dreams, along with some others. Looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you on Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is Know Thyself by Stephen M. Fleming. Know Thyself, the Science of Self-Awareness. And I was very much drawn to this title, The Science of Self-Awareness, or the subtitle, because I think it's such a critical aspect of just well-being. Of course, there's the old um, uh, saying, Know Thyself, which I think was in Delphi, I'm not sure, but it's a classical phrase that we hear a lot about knowing thyself or the unexamined life is not worth living. We hear this phrasing a lot, but I think it's so critical in really understanding our experience of life, but also our overall mental health, that if you don't have self-awareness, it's very difficult to live a, a good life, to live a meaningful and happy life. And even that for me, therapy Although you address issues and problems, so people tend to think, yes, you're depressed, you're anxious, you go see a therapist, and it definitely can be helpful for that. But more of what happens in therapy is an exploration of self-awareness, understanding yourself better, understanding your history better, how it's affected you, what has caused you to become the way you are, and first of all, understanding who you are and what you are and what you're feeling and thinking and all of that. So that's why I was really interested to learn um, about what... Dr. Fleming has to say in this book about self-awareness. And so he's a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of College London. And in the book, he talks about self-awareness. So it's not just in the way that I was saying about, let's say, knowing about what's happened in your past, but in how we evaluate what we're doing and, and things like uncertainty, which is quite interesting because if I ask you, for example, what's the capital of the United States, especially if you live in the United States, You'll know the answer and you'll feel very confident about it. But if I say, for example, what's the capital of New Zealand? You might know it, but many of us, even myself included, might have a guess, but I'll feel much less confident. And so it's interesting, even if we think about that experience, maybe no answer comes to your mind. But even if an answer does come to your mind, there's also this other evaluation of your confidence in that decision or that response or answer, right? So I can tell you, well, what's the capital of the United States? And you might say Washington, D.C., and 100% confidence in my answer, or let's say 99.9, if that's the highest we're going to give you as an option. But if I say, what's the capital of New Zealand? You might draw a blank, or you say something. Even right now, actually, I don't think I know. Is it Auckland? I'm not sure. See, that's kind of how I feel. I would say Auckland, but I'm like 50, 60% sure. 
So there's a clearly a different evaluation that's happening about understanding my certainty. And so we experience that in life in general. We have this additional layer of thinking or feeling that can tell us, give us a sense of how confident we are, which makes sense even in going forward. You want to go somewhere and you know that what you want is there, you'll go much more confidently and directly than if you're not sure it's there. So in this book, he also looks at what's going on in the brain when people are making these types of evaluations. And it does seem like there are parts of the human brain that allow for us to reflect in this way about certainty that, and it seems like other animals don't do this in this way. They don't have this ability to think about what they're thinking in that way, that metacognitive process, which is quite interesting. Now, it's also interesting is when we look at when this development of really fully metacognitive thinking comes about and thinking about our own thinking in that way, it appears to arrive at the same time in childhood that children are also available, uh, uh, able to think of the thinking of other people. So uh, to me, it could be looked at as a chicken or the egg, but the way I think it, it was presented in the book was more that it was first that we were part of our observations, like a lot of things, is to think of other people's thinking. So we're looking at the actions of others to try to understand what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing, something like a theory of mind. And so with that, we were then able to turn that to ourselves as well, to, to introspect and to evaluate my own thinking and feeling and things like that. So it's quite interesting to see that those two things arrive at the same time developmentally, which could tell us there might be some kind of a link. And so each of us have uh, what can be called a metacognitive sensitivity. So what does that mean? This is going back to what I was just saying is how good are you at predicting if you're right or wrong, or basically your confidence. So we keep asking you questions and asking you how confident you are in your um, answers, whether they're perceptual. So a lot of the studies he talks about in the book, for example, it's, you see a cloud of dots and it's hard to tell exactly what way they're moving, sometimes more obvious than others. And you have to say which direction it's moving and also how confident you are that you are right about that. And some people are better at this than others. They have a better metacognitive sensitivity to be able to look at what's happening and also evaluate themselves, which is quite interesting. So some people are better. They're more metacognitively sensitive. It doesn't mean they're better or worse at the task itself. They are just better at evaluating their own performance, so to speak, while others are not as good at that and they might have less metacognitive sensitivity. And then related to that, you might have a metacognitive bias. Some people just tend to think they're right more than they are. I'm sure you've met people like that. And some people tend to think they're wrong more than they are. So there could be a bias as well that you can have in how you look at things. So it's something to think about. It's obviously hard to think about how you think about things. You yourself might think I'm very good at assessing that, but really it would take an external type of an understanding to see are you good at predicting when you're right or wrong or how confident you are in what you're thinking, feeling, or your answer? You, you might be surprised. So that part, you know, I thought was very interesting, recognizing that we have this. And it seems to be, in some ways, like a trait. So it's not just like, well, when it comes to perceptual things, you're good at knowing your, uh, you know, if you're right or wrong or how confident to be. And in other things, you're not. There seems to be some way that it's stable, a type of trait now, he does talk about, are there ways we can improve it and getting into that? And there seems to be some ways that might 
help us become more aware. I think always the first step is just having the intellectual humility to reflect on that and recognize we might be wrong more than we, we think we are, which I think uh, no time than ever has that been more important Which with how polarized we've become across the world. And I see it so much here in the United States. When we talk about any issue, people are so polarized into their you know extremes of what they think is right or wrong, and they're so convinced that they're right. So it's not that the way I would deal with vaccines is right or wrong. It's like, I know I'm right, and anyone else who disagrees with me is stupid and immoral and all those other things. And so we see this with virtually every issue. And this is something I speak about a lot, this intellectual humility that's lacking when you see people post on social media about, for example, taxes. If we do this, this is exactly what's going to happen. Or if we do that, this is what's going to happen. Where ec economists who have studied these things for years can't predict it with that type of precision or be that confident. But people are just saying they know what exactly is going to happen. Or public health things, if we close things or open things, masks, no masks, all these things, I know this is what's going to happen. You have opinions, you might have quote unquote done your own research, but to approach it like you know for sure is probably a huge over-exaggeration and lacks that metacognitive sensitivity to look at what is it you're even talking about. Can you even be that confident about what you're saying? And unfortunately, I think that's gone out the window. And it's also amplified by social media that voices that are going to be the loudest are the ones that are more certain and also are more emotionally charged. So if you say, this is what I think about this proposal, and I'm not sure about this, but this is why I feel this way, you won't get a lot of attention. But if you say, this is such a stupid plan, we have to do it this way, and if you don't think this way, you're an idiot, unfriend me, block me, whatever you want, that voice, unfortunately, is going to be a lot louder, which is a lot less healthy, a lot less balanced, and a lot less accurate. But unfortunately, that voice is going to be louder, and we're seeing this amplification of the not good ways of thinking about things and encourages more and more of that. That if you don't say you know something for sure, then you're stupid or you're dumb or you don't know. And there's going to be someone else that's going to tell you they know for sure how it's going to be. So why wouldn't I listen to that person? Well, this is part of the metacognitive sensitivity. Now we're talking about someone else's thinking, but how you think about that, how confident should I be in someone's ideas and their thinking or what they're saying? And it's comforting to feel like we can 100% trust someone and think they know. But if we are being genuine with ourselves and really reflect on it, we see that they can't know the way they're saying they know. They can't be for sure about that. And so when we look at uh, politics, he also talks about research that's been done on people who are on the extremes. And it goes both to the left and the right, those that are more dogmatic. When they even do perceptual tasks, they are worse at the metacognitive sensitivity. So they think they know they're right, that I can tell, for example, the dots are moving in this way, or that this image was brighter than that image, or whatever the test was. We see that even when it comes to perceptual tasks, there seems to be that stability of, I know I'm right. And that's unfortunately gets you in a lot of trouble because you don't look at all the information and you're also less likely to look at new information. So we have this confirmation bias that I already know the truth, and if I get new information, I see it through the lens of what I think I already know, and I won't even look for anything that disconfirms that. So unfortunately, we see a lot of this happening more and more as we get polarized, that people are less likely to really evaluate all the information, and they think they have to be so certain in order to even hold any type of opinion or belief. 
Uh, there's also, for me, an interesting part about um, how we do certain behaviors and talking about, in sports, players versus coaches. And that actually, when it comes to being a player, this can be one place that a certain type of self-awareness can be hurtful in the sense that once you perform and practice an action over and over again, it becomes automatic and more unconscious. And the more you think about it, the worse you're going to do. You actually won't perform better. And so this is what we see when we talk about someone choking or um, failing under the pressure of the moment is it's usually because they're overthinking a thing that they need to do without thinking. So someone has to take a free throw at the end of the game and the pressure of the moment and the crowd noise and everything gets to them. And you can even see signs their form will look different. The way they shoot looks different than they do when they're comfortably shooting and they're not thinking so much. And so actually as, as a player, it can sometimes be better not to really be thinking so much or being aware of what you're doing in a detailed level. You have to let it flow through you. On the other hand, coaches need to be able to explain it to the players of what to do, what not to do. So they have to have more of that metacognitive side of understanding the self-awareness of what it takes to do well. And he mentioned how you often see that great players don't become great coaches. It's pretty rare. And also most of the best coaches in any sport weren't very good players in that sport if they played at all. A lot of times they were more role players or a smaller player, but they could become better coaches because they had to focus on different things than the player does. This is actually another reason why I, I'll watch sometimes post-game interviews just because it's interesting. But I think the questions they ask the players oftentimes about why did you do this and what happened, and they give an explanation. It can be interesting to hear what they say, but often I don't think a player is quite aware of what they did in that moment after the fact they're explaining, I thought this, I thought that, I did this, but I don't know if that's really what was going on. Things likely were happening much more automatically than that. But anyway, uh, plus the questions they ask tend to be to me pretty ridiculous at times, but um, it's all to fill more and more sound bites and create hype before the game, after the game, in between the games to kind of keep the, that media machine side of sports going, which I, I obviously have to say I support because I watch a lot of sports myself. Anyway, coming back to this, that's my self-awareness. Um, the Science of Self-Awareness. This book was, I think, very interesting in understanding or giving me an understanding of the science behind what we're seeing in self-awareness, understanding how the human brain might be actually processing this type of information, how uncertainty plays such a critical role in how we interact with our environments, both from a perceptual way, but also intellectually. When we consider different things, we have to recognize when we don't know what we know or how confident we are in what we know. And I think it's important to reflect on that aspect of self-awareness, the kind of meta side of things of how do I think I am about this? You can even ask people around you what how they see you. Are you someone who's overconfident in what you know or underconfident? Or are you someone who seems to have a pretty gauge on when you know something and don't know something. So quite fascinating in those ways. That was Know Thyself, The Science of Self-Awareness by Stephen Fleming. Let's go to our first commercial break, studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back, studio number 310-441-0555. So I wanted to continue on this theme of when we talk about self-awareness, but our awareness of the information we are taking in. And 
when we talk about metacognitive sensitivity, as I mentioned in the previous segment, it's about our own confidence or awareness of the confidence we have or should have in what we think, believe, perceive, whatever it might be. But another way of that is when someone else is talking or taking in that information, the confidence we have in their confidence. So it's kind of like maybe meta, meta or some kind of recursive thing. But when someone tells me they know something, how confident should I be? And that was in the book too, things like eyewitness testimony and how it can be, of course, helpful, but it can be flawed often. And especially once a investigation has gone on for a while, it becomes less reliable because it gets affected by so many things. And so the person might get more and more confident, not because they're more confident genuinely, but because they keep repeating the story and police officers and other investigators repeat it or make it seem so true that it feels more fixed and firm and true, but it's not necessarily the case. So there, there, that was in the book too, in some ways. I also am looking at it in the sense of when we hear people tell us about something, because you get a lot of that. Um, and people, especially as I mentioned, are drawn to certainty because there is some connection. Even that's what we think. If I tell you, you know, I'm sure about this. And if you know me and you trust me, okay, well, you know that when I tell you I, I'm, I'm very certain about this answer or this whatever it is, you feel pretty good. If I say I'm not so sure, you trust that too, because you know I'll say that. Unfortunately, a lot of times we're meeting people or interacting with people or it's companies or someone online, and it's the first time. And so we can only go based on that one interaction, or that is our first interaction. So one thing that you know came to my mind when thinking about this segment was the, the phrase scientifically proven. And so you'll see that on a lot of advertisements for things, you know, this this nutritional supplement is scientifically proven to boost X, Y, and Z. This shampoo is going to do this. This product is scientifically proven to do this thing. And so if we think about it, scientifically proven is a paradox or an oxymoron in the sense that science does allow us to learn a lot and we see a lot of things from it, but we can't say something is just scientifically proven in the sense that we know for sure it's true because science is this process of trying to really more prove things that we, we think might not be true or not support something. Really, we're trying to understand things better by bringing evidence for and against things. But most respectable scientists will never tell you they've proven this thing, especially proven it beyond a shadow of a doubt. So when you just think this is the science and it has to be true, something we, we hear a lot, it, that's itself a mistake. Now, I should maybe make a caveat here about it doesn't mean when scientists say something, it's meaningless or it's equal to what anyone else says. Not at all. Uh, when we're talking about proven, that's what I'm talking about. But our best understanding of something is going to come from the individuals who have been studying that phenomenon, whatever it might be. And so if you were about to get on a plane, I don't think you would say, well, let's not worry about the, the science that the you know aerospace people have determined, let's just let anyone build the engines and, and come up with the, the features of the plane because it's not meaningless. No, of course you would say it's not a perfect science. No science will be, but I trust the experts to develop this plane. Just like if you're on the plane and something happened to the pilot and the co-pilot of the plane, you wouldn't say anyone should go fly the plane. You would say if there's anyone who has experience, expertise, knowledge in flying a plane, let's have them go take the wheel or take, I don't know what you call it, the controls. So my, my point definitely is not to say, don't listen to science. It's recognizing it is imperfect, but it's our best 
answer. It's our best understanding is to, to, to listen to those who have, have studied that particular question, that particular field, whatever it might be. But coming back to this potential for overconfidence that we can see, people will say that they have proven something when, in fact, science cannot do that. They can't prove that thing. And so if someone tells you something is proven, that tells you they're almost definitely trying to sell you something, which is this belief in their product and then the product itself, or oftentimes, depending on what type of a thing you're looking at, it could be selling themselves, which is also to sell you themselves as a product. So when someone is being overly confident about what they're doing and they're stating something that can't be true, we want to have that metacognitive type of sensitivity of evaluating that information to recognize what's going on here, that someone is really trying to make us believe something that can't be proven. And so I see this a lot also with mental health types of things online where people will say, this is definitely going to help you with your relationship, with your depression, with whatever it might be. And quick fixes are so, so common right now. Uh, it makes sense to want a quick fix. If you have, if there is a solution to something that takes less energy, it would make sense to do that. Just being any kind of biological being, if you could do something easier, well, of course you should look for that approach. So this is where when we talk about the metacognitive sensitivity, we can understand we are drawn towards things that make things sound easy and simple. We're drawn towards certainty. If someone says, this appears to be the way it is, we're not sure, that leaves us with some anxiety. If someone says, this is definitely how it is, 100%, that makes us feel more certain. But if we're genuinely trying to understand the situation and see the reality of what's going on, we have to recognize that even though someone can say it in that way and it might feel good in the moment, it might draw us to it, it's not because it actually is good information. And so this actually relates to something in metacognition of how we learn in general. And this was in the book as well. When we're studying, uh, that's actually a form of metacognition we, have, we might not think about is how am I going to study for this test? How much time do I need, of course, but then also how am I going to study? Am I going to review notes? Am I going to try practice questions? Am I going to reread the materials? Am I going to study with someone and then we test each other? All of that is something that we have to try to figure out in learning how we study. And I always think that when people go to college, one of the first things is they learn how they learn. What's a good way for them to study what works and doesn't work for them? Because you're much more on your own in college compared to high school and before that. And so a lot of it is like, how do I get ready for a test? Because it's a different process now where I have four weeks to get ready for a test and classes and readings and all this. How do I get there? So we have to try to understand how we learn. Now, one of the problems is we tend to be drawn to ways of studying that feel good in the moment, but actually are not as beneficial to our studying and learning and then being able to uh, comprehend and then repeat that information or present that information in whatever type of way. So we like to just read over our notes again and again. And we think we know them because it all feels very familiar. This, yeah, yeah, da, 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 da. That's, that's, it seems very simple. And it feels easy and it feels good. And when people study that way, they feel good. But it doesn't contribute as much to learning as compared to doing things that actually feel a little bit uncomfortable, like testing yourself. So looking at part of it, but don't looking at the answer. That's why something like a flashcard can be good where you look at the front, you don't know the answer, you have to think about 
the answer. That type of retrieval of the information, trying to produce the information, is much better studying than just reading the material that's all there in front of you. But the problem is when you're doing that, it doesn't feel as good. You get stuck. You can get things wrong. It takes more effort. And that doesn't feel good. So there's a fluency in studying the first way where you just read through things. And when you study the other way, it's less fluent. It feels less easy. A great analogy that lends itself very obviously is when you exercise. So imagine you do an exercise and you're barely moving and it just feels so easy and good. Or you move a little bit, but you're barely pushing your body at all out of its comfort zone. And it feels really good in the sense that it's comfortable and easy. But how much is it contributing contributing to you building your physical strength, your cardiovascular strength, all of those types of things, your actual genuine health is not going to be impacted much by that kind of workout or won't have many benefits. But if you do a workout that's tough, that you do movements that aren't easy for your body and push it a little bit out of the comfort zone, something new and different, that's much more likely to lead to building of strength, cardiovascular ability, all those types of things. So we see the same thing in learning. But unfortunately, if we just go based on what people feel good about doing, they choose the easier option, which doesn't serve them in getting ready for the test. And so similarly, when we are taking in information from the world, the easier thing is just to, okay, I tr I'm going to say this source is very confident, so I'm just going to take in everything they say, and that's it. It's a lot easier that way than to make, oh, well, this person seems to have something to say, but I still want to think critically and skeptically about what they're saying and make sure I'm thinking for myself and not letting them just do the thinking for me, because that is easier for me. So often people are taking advantage of this. They know that if they say something with certainty, that they're 100% right, that there's no room for doubt, that they are for sure the person who knows, you're going to kind of be lulled to sleep and just take in what they have to say. And over time, more and more, you'll just look to them as they know everything. I don't have to think for myself anymore, which feels good. And now they can take advantage of that in whatever way, whether it's just getting your attention, which might provide them with some kind of income or give them the attention they want, or selling you something in some way down the line. And now you think, well, this person knows stuff. So of course, I one, I trust them. And two, there must be something good in this thing they're selling me. And now they, they have you kind of wrapped around their finger. So we have to do the harder work, which doesn't feel good, but to constantly be aware. And this doesn't mean you never trust anyone or you're 100% skeptical. We have to find a balance of taking things in, but also making sure we think for ourselves. Even in um, Eric Fromm's book, To Have or To Be, I think it was called, um, you know, I, I was very struck by something in the book where he's saying when, you, when you're reading a book, you shouldn't just passively be taking in the information and just sitting there and think of yourself as a receptacle taking in the information. You should think of it as a conversation in the sense that you are reading, but then you're also thinking and, and coming up with your own ideas about what you're reading, what you agree with, what you don't agree with, different perspectives, things that might apply to your own life. Now, it's a conversation. Hopefully, you don't hear the author responding to what you're saying. That itself could be another issue, but you shouldn't just be passively taking in that information. And even taking a step back, you know, something I thought about about doing this segment, and it's come to me before, you know, I read these books every week. And so I do a little bit of research, but it's not so deep. There's only so much I can do without reading the book of the author and what the book's about and different things. And this is where we do definitely look at people who are reviewing the books. And there's a credibility that comes when you see certain individuals who have reviewed the book and give a little blurb on the back cover. 
But then I read the book. And now when we see a book, we think, well, this person has something to say. Now, I mean, in a way, we all have something to say. But what I mean is that they have something meaningful to say. Something is very good about what they have to say. And the truth is really when someone writes a book, it's not that they necessarily have something good to say. It's that they think they have something good to say, which means, which is very different because there's a lot of people that think they have something good to say and they genuinely do. But there's a lot of people that think they have something good to say, but they don't have the metacognitive sensitivity to understand their own ability or what they have to share, or they have a positive metacognitive bias to think that they're more certain about what they have to say than they probably should be. And so they're also writing books. And on the flip side of that, unfortunately, there are probably thousands and of course, throughout the course of history, millions of people who had something very valuable to say, but didn't believe in themselves enough to write their book or to put it out there in whatever way. So there's all these unwritten books that we will never get to read. And there's a lot of written books that we shouldn't read or actually won't contribute to your understanding or might even contribute to your misinformation and miseducation. And it's hard to tell the difference. There's no uh, litmus test to clearly know this is one of those books or not. And of course, it's less black and white than that, that there could be something in that book that's good or bad or in almost any book, but we have to be critical in how we think about those things. So we can't even think, well, this is a published book. It must be good. This is a uh, you know, even they're a professor at a university, they have to have something to say. And I don't by any means say this to undermine what people do when they create ideas, when they study things, science. I think it's wonderful. I obviously read the books because I think they have value. But it's just a reminder that we have to constantly be aware of how we're listening, what we're listening to, what people are saying, the biases that we can have, the tendency to want someone to be certain, so we might be drawn towards that, but recognizing that the more valuable voices, the ones that are going to be more reflective of a reality, are going to include some uncertainty. It doesn't mean they're flip-floppers. It doesn't mean they don't have ideas or beliefs or thoughts. It just means that they're trying to look at the whole scope of things, and they have the intellectual humility, which is a huge strength, to recognize that they know some things, but they also know they might not know it as well as they think they do, and there's so much they don't know and so much they don't even know they don't know. So they approach with that mindset that I'm trying to keep understanding, I'm contributing to the understanding, but I can't say I know know it all myself. So as tough as it might be, we have to accept that no one could do the thinking for us. It's always going to be up to us to continue that process. And if we're even listening, we're part of the conversation, even if we can't actually talk back and that we're doing some thinking in our head as well. All right, let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment I was talking about being aware of people who are claiming a, a bit too much, overconfident or saying that they something is scientifically proven or that they have all the answers to something, some kind of solution to some life problem, physical problem, medical, emotional, relational problem, and making it seem so simple. And there's definitely a pull for that because it's comforting to think someone knows, but we might have to face the harsh reality that they're overselling it and we're going to pay some kind of price down the line if we just accept what they're telling us at face value. But at the other extreme, there's a very common, maybe even more common experience that people have of thinking less of themselves of thinking 
they can't do something or they'll never be good at something and, uh, you know, holding themselves small, which we, we all can do in different ways and some people might do it more than others. And so there's ways that we can even use insecurities to protect us. And so this is what I wanted to talk about in this segment because it's often conf- oftentimes confusing or sounds like a misnomer when we hear things like comfort zone because when I tell you I'm feeling comfortable in my chair or this is a really comfortable temperature, that means it feels good and it just is good. It's nice for me to be in that type of experience. But when we talk about comfort zone in our lives, what we're talking about is accepting some type of reality, which might even be very distressing, depressing, make us sad, make us feel even miserable. But we're choosing that reality over facing the uncertainty that would come with making that comfort zone no longer a reality or facing some different uh, discomfort along the way to create some kind of a different life. So you're comfortable in your home all by yourself, but you might feel lonely, but you're afraid to go out and meet people because you can get rejected, you can get hurt, you can get your hopes up, all those different types of things. So you just stay in your home by yourself. It doesn't mean that's making you happy when we say it's your comfort zone. We're saying that you've gotten used to it and comfortable in the sense that you can predict this. It's kind of like the, as I say, I prefer the devil I know versus the devil I don't know, which is very, very true for most people's human experience. And so when we look at insecurity, um, whatever it might be, a physical type of thing, mental thing, your, you know, how much money you have, whatever it is, as paradoxical as it can seem, they often serve to protect us. So it could be hard to think, well, I think I'm a loser, I'm this, I'm that. How is that good or protecting? Well, it's protecting you from if you lost that insecurity, what would you have to face? If you didn't think no one wants to be with you, let's say romantically, or no one would want to hire you, well, what would you have to face? You'd have to actually go apply for a job or go date or make yourself vulnerable in some way, and that might freak you out. Uh, you know, I do use a lot of sports analogies, but we can imagine if you are getting ready for some big race or big competition, and if they tell you, you know, um, it turns out the competition got canceled. And what I think is if we really think about it, most people, most of the time, maybe you feel sad a bit or you're a little bit frustrated, but oftentimes we might actually feel a big sense of relief. <sighs> like I don't have to go through that. I don't have to potentially fail, put myself out there. And we do this in our own lives. We cancel or we don't even let something happen because we are afraid or we don't have to face those uncertainties, those insecurities. So if I someone tells himself, no one would want to be with me romantically, and it seems like, oh, I'm so sad and no one likes me and no one will ever like me and the world is so this way and why is it so unfair for me? And some of it might come from some truth. There's, I'm sure, some experiences to let that led to that insecurity or that type of feeling. But then if you try to challenge it, you might even notice this, that they don't want to accept that. Or there might be things that disconfirm what they're saying. Like, oh, what about that that guy that you that approached you, said he wanted to go out with you? Oh, no, no. I mean, he's just dead. There's some reason to take away that possibility because we can see there's a protection and holding on to that insecurity. By making what they want impossible, even though they don't get what they want, they at least don't have to face the uncertainties that come with putting themselves out there. And I think it's even interesting if we look at that word insecurity, it in a way protects us, it puts us in security. I, I, I think it could be interesting to look at these types of 
artifacts of language, but not to get too attached to them because in some other language it won't work. Uh, and, you know, sometimes people will hear something and if it rhymes or something they think is good. So if you say, if you do this and this, da 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 this, people say, oh, it rhymes. So it sounds like there's some wisdom to it, but maybe it just rhymes. But anyway, I think it's interesting that that word insecurity puts us in security by saying you don't have to face anything. No, you can't. You can't play. You're still too injured to play in the big game. So you can never play. You want to. You wish you could, but you can't. Oh, no one even wants to hire you. So why would you even go apply for a job? And so we would hope that you actually challenge that and say, I don't know. So this actually is interesting. It's the other kind of knowing to the other extreme. Sometimes people are overconfident in their ability in a good way. But actually, this might not just be underconfidence. It's almost overconfidence in the other direction. Of I'm overconfident that I know the truth. And the reality is that something can't happen for me. I can't write a book. I can't be in a relationship. I can't get a job. Uh, no one is going to like me in this way or that way. It's overconfidence of the negative side of things that no one is going to want to be with me. So we have to look at those in our life. We all have them. Some are more extreme than others, but these assumptions that we make, sometimes we might not even think of it as an insecurity. You might put a different label on it. But these assumptions we have about knowing the world and knowing how things are going to go, and that knowing is not because we actually know, it's that it's too scary to realize we don't know. Even sometimes in therapy, when I discuss with people how they're feeling about, let's say, their, their career. And when the topic comes up of let's think of what you would want to do if you could do anything, it's a very scary conversation for people to even look at a lot of times. So, of course, in a, you know ideal world, we'd all want our dream jobs and would get our dream type of job or career, whatever that means. But when it actually comes to real life, and you already have a career, and let's say you've already studied and you've done it for many years, it can be scary to realize you wish you were doing something else. Because if you don't know, you can just say, oh, yeah, this is my job. There's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm, you know, this is it. This is life. But if you recognize, oh, wait, I actually really wish I was doing this, and I think that would make me happier than what I'm doing now, now it puts you in a really tough spot because you have to either do all the hard work of making a change, facing all the uncertainty, you could fail or not make it in some way. You might face hardships. Usually when you're changing careers, there's some challenges financially and other things that you're going to have to experience to get to that dream job. Or you're going to do nothing but know that you actually wish you were doing something else and you have to live with that. So I think most people actually avoid really knowing what they want to do. Because if they figured it out, they would realize they have to do something about it or live knowing that they're not giving themselves the opportunity to have what they want. And that's what we have to recognize it boils down to. It's not that, oh, if you want your dream job, you for sure can have it. I don't know. I don't know what your dream job is. You know, I'm still hoping the Los Angeles Lakers will draft me one of these days. I always dreamed to be on the Lakers when I was a kid. So if that's your dream job or that's the level of dreaming, uh, you probably won't get there. I don't think there's a good chance the Lakers will be uh, giving me a call anytime soon. So I don't know what your dream job or career is. And that's another element of it, actually. This is like a side conversation, recognizing how relevant or steeped in reality is what you're saying. So everyone wants to be, you know, a rock star, athlete, uh, movie star, whatever it is. Those things sound really fun and exciting. And often it's an escape from doing the actual hard work to do something that might draw us rather than it's our genuine calling or passion. But that part 
um, aside. But if you really think about what you want to do, it's not that there's a guarantee you're going to be able to do it and also that you'll be successful at it, but it's giving yourself the opportunity. And really in life, that's a lot of all we can do is give ourselves opportunities to have certain experiences. If you want to have a happy relationship and be in a loving, committed relationship, the first step is just giving yourself the opportunity to have that. Is it guaranteed it's going to go well and you're going to be happy for the rest of your life? No, there's no guarantee. It actually can go wrong in lots of ways. That's very possible. And actually, that's what makes it so meaningful is that you're creating something that has to have some risk. Anything that's meaningful has risks that come with it inherent in what it is and also in the fact that you can lose that thing. So you have to accept that. So when it comes to even what you want to do with your life, it's not that we can guarantee you'll give it to yourself, but if you don't give yourself an opportunity, obviously you can't have it. And that's the part that is first and foremost in your control. What am I preventing myself from even having the chance of having in my life? And all of us are doing that in different ways. We're choosing comfortable ways of being and oh, you know, it's too late. Or, you know, you hear so many things. Well, I'm too old now. I'm this age now, so I can't do this or that. Or, well, you know, I don't think they would, someone else wouldn't want me to do this, you know, it would just be too much. Or people are depending on me or this or that. And again, I don't want to uh, say that there aren't genuine things that will get in your way. Of course there is. And you have to look at responsibilities and things that are genuinely there. So it's not, we can just like abandon everyone and everything and drop what life is and just do something else. That's not always possible, especially when you have people dependent on you. But all of us are still creating these excuses that get in the way of doing something. And our insecurities can be a very easy way to do that. And it seems like, well, I'm so sad about this. So how could it be serving me? How could, oh, me thinking I'm, you know, too dumb to get a job. How would that be something I'm doing on purpose? Well, you could be doing that because you know that if you recognize you're not too dumb to get a job or to get that job that you want, you have to go apply for it. And now you have to do the work of applying. You have to put yourself out there and be vulnerable. You could get rejected and that doesn't feel good. Or you could get the job and that might freak you out too of what is it going to be like doing that job? Can I do it? Can I keep the job? Now I have something I want. There's an anxiety that comes with having something we want that you can lose it. And very often people avoid that too. So we're afraid at times of the failure and of the success. That's often the case with the things that we really value is that we really want it, but we're also afraid to have it. And we're also afraid to get hurt in the process. So ask yourself, what are the insecurities I have, I hold on to, that might be holding me back? How am I using those insecurities as a form of protection to stay in security to prevent myself from having to even try certain things? And in that way, what are the opportunities that I'm not even allowing for myself to have to try to experience some of the things that if I could choose what happens in my life, I would choose to have these certain things, but I'm not even giving myself that chance. So we can be overconfident for sure in the positive way, but we can also be overconfident in the negative way of thinking we know that something is not going to work out or that we can't have something. And we have to challenge that. And as the simplified way I like to put it is we often choose depression over anxiety, meaning we choose a sadness, but a sadness we know over facing the anxiety that comes with facing that uncertainty. And I hope all of us will consider the challenge or one of the challenges that we have in life is to go into that uncertainty and into that anxiety. Don't just settle for the life 
that has somehow come upon you. Choose a life and put yourself out there to face those things and those obstacles and challenges and give yourself the opportunity to have the possibility of having the life you want and the things you want in it. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Studio number 310-441-0555. This segment, I wanted to talk about the ways we look at people and the ways we can turn some people into gods. Relates to what I was saying before about thinking someone is who says they're so confident about what they know and that they know so much is definitely right, and we can sometimes elevate them uh, to a godlike place where we can just mindlessly listen to what they're saying and follow it and we're going to somehow be okay and be happy and recognizing that no one can do that we can never have someone do all the thinking for us we can learn from others but we have to still think for ourselves and on our own another group of people that we can turn into gods are artists and we can feel uh you know this type of connection with them and we can elevate them to this status that becomes godlike now, I think there, there's lots of reasons for this. Um, one is definitely they connect to us in an emotional way, or we connect to them in, in an emotional way, because a, a good artist is expressing something within themselves, something very deep and and pure and beautiful in their emotions and their feelings, and they put it in some format that then we can internalize or experience, and then we feel the same thing. And this is why even when I talk about these topics, I know that when it can be done with art in some way, I can talk for 15 minutes on a segment, but someone could do with one painting or one uh, poem, something that penetrates much deeper to the heart, because art is in the language of, you know, we might say the soul, but we're really thinking of, like, of our feelings, of our unconscious, of the emotional experience. And so it's a more pure uh, and it involves less interpretation than the words do. So we have to put something into words and it's not going to have that emotional charge and then we try to internalize it. But when you do something with art in some way, it can penetrate much more deeply. And so in that way, people can connect with someone who is an artist in such a deep way because they share that with us. But now when we make them superhuman, I can understand this connection. Sometimes they helped you through a tough time or made you feel something that was very valuable. So it's not to undermine that experience. But what I think is interesting is when we turn them into gods, and I was having a conversation with someone and they put it um, in this way, which I thought was really interesting. You know, we turn artists into these gods and think they're superhuman, but it's not that they're su superhuman, it's that they are so human or so purely human. That is what we are enjoying and think is so valuable. Or the way I think of it is that they're not superhuman, they're superbly human. They're being human to such a full degree that when we experience what they create, we feel something very deep. Because what is happening for most of us most of the time is we're not just reflecting that which is within us, we have all these filters of what we think we're supposed to do, make sure you don't embarrass yourself, make sure you do it the right way, make sure you don't violate this norm or this value or this thing that you're told to never do or this thing you should always do. And so because of that, with all those filters and layers, what comes out is much less pure and genuine and raw than what is possible. So unfortunately, it's that we are getting in the way 
of expressing what is there. I'll, I'll go deeper into that. It also reminds me, people say the power of the mind is, is so strong, which it is, I think, the mind is very powerful. But it's not that, you know, sometimes people say, oh, if you do this, you know, we only use 10% of our brains, which doesn't really make sense, but we only use 10% of our brains. If you use this, you know, supplement, or if you do this exercise, you'll use more of it. Um, but to me, it's the same thing where it's not that it's that we have to make our minds stronger. It's that actually we put these chains or we do these things and make our mind not be the way it can actually be or to express itself. It might sound similar to that 10% thing. But what I mean is that we, we don't allow ourselves to do the things that we can do. And so it's not that you've become superhuman in how you think or experience things to, to utilize the mind more. So we have to get out of our own way more. And so similarly, a good artist is going to get out of their own way and allowing what they're feeling to be expressed more directly and more clearly. And you hear this in a lot of quotes, and I don't have them. Um, so off the top of my head, I don't want to quote anyone. But you'll probably have seen lots of quotes from great artists or people talking about art. And they'll actually often say that what they're trying to do is capture that inner child, or if they could paint as they were a child and now create that with their adult hands, they would create something much more beautiful than if they try to paint as an adult themselves. So there's something about that childlike innocence, and it's not to say that children should be, you know, it's about being a child itself, but it's recognizing that more unadulterated way of experiencing life that you just play, that you're being free, that you just express yourself. And I'll get into being an artist itself, but also a recognition that we are all, in a way, artists in that sense, that living is a art in the way that we are improvising or creating everything that happens. And that book's Free Play by Steve, is it Nachmanovich? I'm not sure if I'm saying Stephen Nachmanovich. Anyway, in that book, he was talking about, you know, even just conversations or our everyday life is this type of improvisation when you communicate with one another. And even if you think of that, having a basic conversation, so much of it gets affected or filtered by the things we think we're supposed to do. Well, I have to say these things, I have to say that, I can't you know, express something too strong, I have to keep things within myself or within certain boundaries, and so it becomes much more rigid. But if you think of your more enjoyable conversations, they're usually the ones that are much more free-flowing, there's a flexibility, it might not fit the standard mold of what a conversation has to look like or is supposed to look like to be formal and, and, and good in some way. You're just communicating and both of you are having a free-flowing exchange. Those are usually the much more enjoyable conversations. Even as I'm saying that, I'm imagining kind of, I'm having almost a smile on my face thinking of that type of interaction that's that's more free, that's more open, that I can just tell you what I'm thinking, you tell me, or I make a joke, or I don't have to say the kind of thing that we usually say, and that's what makes it enjoyable, is it doesn't have to fit that mold from the outside. So it's not that we're tapping into some superpower of having this conversation, it's that we're removing the filters and the layers that interfere with this more direct exchange and this more direct back and forth that we can actually have and create together. So when I talk about this aspect of things of being more superbly human, tapping into that, it's not just if you're an artist in the sense of being a painter or a singer or a dancer, really recognizing that life is art in this way of being genuine and authentic in how you express yourself and how you communicate with others in everything that we do. Living our life can be seen as an art, and I think it actually should be. But so artists achieve something beautiful by tapping into what's there and trusting that. I actually really appreciate when I see 
art, whether it's an actor, especially if somebody's in music, you'll hear this where you, you can tell someone is taking a risk. They're not just singing a song in the standard way or the way it's always been done. They're pushing their limits, even vocally, sometimes stretching their voice to how far it can go. They're doing something different from the standard type of way of songs and how they are. And that's usually what penetrates more deeply and we feel really strongly. And sometimes I'll, I'll hear a song and I'll love that the person just took such a risk and says something that you're like, well, well you wouldn't have expected that that's the right way or good way to say it, or a song shouldn't be this way but they just go for it and they created something, which clearly means they were tapping into something in themselves and not letting the judgments get in the way. And often when we're creating good art, you want to at first, especially have that free play part related to what I was saying before. And I think it was in that book, but first there's just the creative part where it's just like you're throwing things against the wall and seeing what stick sticks. And then later you might evaluate it and look at, okay, these are the parts I like and you develop it in some way. But at first it's just letting things come out. And so this is where the unconscious comes uh, to play. And it's not, uh, this is something I've talked about before, we think of the unconscious just about desires and these things because of the legacy of Freud and explaining the unconscious. But really what our unconscious is, is this um, repository of all the thoughts, feelings, beliefs, connections that we can make. And it's kind of making connections all the time. And we're usually getting in its way of expressing what's there, but we have to get out of its way, let things happen. And this is why I know when people will talk about art in Stephen Pressfield's book, uh, The War of Art, and other people when they discuss art, uh, right now I'm reading The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, you know, there is sometimes this mystical thing of art being coming from some other source, uh, that it's, you know, it's not from me because I don't even know where it's coming from. It doesn't feel like we thought about that idea as it comes to us, or it's almost this feeling like a whole song came to me all at once, or a whole poem came to me at once. So it must have come from some outside source. And I obviously can't say I know where it's coming from, but I do think we underestimate the power of our unconscious and what is happening within us. And because it's unconscious, we can't know exactly what's happening. You're not aware of it, and we have to allow for that to happen, allow for the connections to be made for um, things to come about in a new way that comes from within us. But I think most of us get in the way of tapping into that source. So it doesn't mean it has to be a source like a metaphysical thing or a god or a muse. It could just be what is within us, but that we're not always aware of and we don't allow to happen. And so that's a sad thing to think about, that within all of us, there's a source of so much more but we almost always are getting in the way of letting what's there come out or for that really true strength and that beauty to be expressed because we don't even hear that voice. We're, we're not even trying to pay attention that, to what's coming up or these ideas come like, oh my God, that's so stupid or that's so silly or that's so this or that's so that. This is another reason why I think we're not responsible for, we should recognize we're not responsible for, our initial and fleeting thoughts. Your unconsciousness makes all sorts of connections. If you think about hurting someone, it doesn't mean you're a violent or aggressive person or you dislike that person. Or if you dream about someone dying, it doesn't mean you hope they die and doesn't mean you're going to predict that they're dying. Well, we're all going to die at some point, but it doesn't mean their death is imminent because you dreamt about it. But they have this uh, ability, our unconscious does, of just making these connections. And so even people actually with obsessive compulsive disorder, they'll have these intrusive thoughts now, I don't know, it, probably something hard to, to study. Do they have more negative thoughts than others? It's possible. 
if they're anxious, I could understand there's a tendency to focus more on the negative than others. We all look for the negative. It's part of survival. You have to make sure there's something not out there that can hurt you, kill you in some way. And But maybe if they're anxious, they think about it more. But I think what also seems to be the problem is those negative thoughts stick more. So they have a thought of hurting their parent or something. And then all of a sudden, oh my God, I can't believe I thought that. That's so bad. What's wrong with me? And then it gets in this loop and it gets stuck. And it does seem like there's things that make it harder for individuals who are struggling with OCD to kind of switch the thoughts. So the, the analogy is like you go to a film and in the movie theater, they switch the reels every few minutes. Well, someone with OCD, that reel just keeps playing over and over again, and they can't seem to switch it. They get stuck on that thought. And then now they might do some kind of compulsive behavior, repetitive behavior, something, checking, whatever it might be, to try to get rid of that thought or to prevent a bad thing they're imagining in that thought from from happening. And so it feels like this overpowering feeling that I have to do this thing or else this bad thing happens. But we're not responsible for a fleeting thought. Our brain is just creating all sorts of, of things that it can do. And in that way, actually, you know, bringing it back to the artist, I think it's tough because I think it's nice to acknowledge and recognize artists and what they do, but some of what they're doing, it's not from them exactly either. It is from them and it isn't, you know, just like we all have this thing, but how attached we are to it is something we can think about. Or sometimes I think about an artist might have a performance and they might not even hear it as they're performing it. And it's really a gift they're giving to the world. And even they might enjoy it later on themselves. It doesn't have to be attached to them in some way that we think it's them. And now they should get all this, uh, you know, un this credit that makes it larger than life. But it could be something that they've given to the world that we can now all enjoy, including that person. But anyway, coming back to the unconscious, it's constantly making various types of connections. Even when I'm talking on the air, I tend to have a type of uh, plan of things to talk about, but I also allow for myself to improvise a bit because sometimes my best thoughts will come to me as I talk about something. So I'm allowing my brain, my my mind to you know think about these things and to go and make different types of connections. And sometimes they'll be great and sometimes they won't be because they're happening in the moment. But I try to allow for some of that because I recognize that there is something in that play of the ideas. And when we think of play, we think it's something silly and informal or has to be not serious. But play is really when we're just trying new things, trying new configurations and reconfigurations, combining and recombining in different ways. And wonderful things can come up when we allow for that to happen. But so the great artists that we admire, coming back full circle, are not superhuman. They're superbly human in that they have learned how to trust that voice, how to connect to that voice within and those things that are going on within them to allow for their unconscious to play and to trust that play and to, to play with that even more, to bring it out and even consciously play with it too, to create something new and to trust that there's some value there. And I hope even if you're not thinking of creating any type of art in the more tangible ways that we think about, recognizing that you yourself are living as an artist in your day-to-day -day life and how much are you allowing for that inner self to be expressed? How much do you trust that voice, trust yourself to experience things and express certain things that might not be the norm but might be something quite beautiful? We can express our art in a variety of ways in our day-to-day -day life. Our conversations can be one of them. Think of the the beautiful conversations, the artistic ways you can communicate with one another. It doesn't mean you have to be dancing and doing something funny as you talk, but genuinely expressing something from within. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. 
So in this segment, I wanted to talk about um, some recent technological developments or advancements. Definitely, I'm not on the cutting edge of, of explaining any of those things, but just wanted to share some thoughts about uh, an area or area of technology that has been around but is becoming a little more prominent and seems to be gaining some steam. And that is living or experiencing a metaverse or you know, being in a, what's called Web 3 or Web 3.0 which is basically uh, being in these virtual reality type worlds, and you can do it in different levels. Somebody's actually wearing something like an Oculus goggles or glasses where you are fully immersed in it, or sometimes it's just on your computer screen. But we're seeing more and more of this uh, type of experience becoming common. Now, it's existed in different ways even before. There were games where you could pretend to be a person, or and there still are. Uh, but even these go back a few decades where you can play these types of games. And now when I when I see these types of technologies and things come about, I always try to be cautious because we know that often when there is a new type of technology or almost always a new technology comes out, people um, think it's going to you know be the end of the world or it's going to have such a negative impact and it becomes very black and white. Is this thing good or bad? Even in Know Thyself, um, the book I started off today talking about. Uh, he mentioned how Socrates, I think it was, thought that the written word, writing, was going to be really bad and make people more stupid because no longer would they have to memorize things. And so it was going to lead to people, you know, being able to carry this knowledge on the paper but not knowing anything themselves. So, uh, but most of us don't think of written word being a bad thing and reading being a bad thing. Uh, but we see this happen with television or radio, television, the internet, all these things, we always see, well, it's this bad thing. And I think there's always going to be the potential and the consequences that will be bad that we do see happening, but we want to try to look at them in a more balanced way or understand are there, what's the good and the bad and how can we maximize the good, minimize the bad globally and you know, as a society, but then also ourselves as individuals. So social media is another one of those things that could be seen as all bad or all good. Um, I don't think it's either of those things. Has it had some negative consequences? Absolutely. Um, in, in political ways in the world and causing division and also individually in people's mental health, it can have a negative impact depending on how they're doing it or using it. And so two concepts for me come up when we look at this and then also now comparing it to what's happening with the metaverse, Web 3.0, is connection and balance. So the first one, we could look at balance in your what I mean by that is balance in your life. Is this whatever it is you're using, fill in the blank. It can even be an activity. It can even be a person. You might meet someone and think you're in love and it's all about passion, but not realize it's putting your life completely out of balance and that's not good. So we have to look at whatever this thing is that we're experiencing, whether it's a relationship with a person, a new activity, a hobby, uh, going online, going on social media, is it creating balance or imbalance in my life? Or am I able to incorporate it into the balance of my life? And we do see that with things like social media, where it can be used with very much, uh, the imbalance becomes very clear. People can be on it for hours and hours and hours, neglect their um, relationships, responsibilities, things they need to do, uh, while it also might have a negative impact on their mental health 
anyway. So on top of that, it's not even feeling good for them, but that they really do get out of balance. And so we've seen that or with video games. So it's not that video games are all good or all bad. What's the balance like? So I work with a lot of families where this comes up. Should my son or daughter play video games? And I, I don't think it's a black and white issue. It's looking at can they play video games or first let's look at are the video games causing their life to be out of balance or is it okay? You know, in some ways it might be another way of watching TV or watching a screen. It's a video game. Of course, the types they play and those things we can look at too. But overall, it's not that it's just all good or bad. You know, you can have a parent that says, oh my gosh, my kid's playing hours of video games, but then they binge watch shows on Netflix themselves. So maybe it's slightly different, but also let's not make it seem like it's night and day different either. So we have to look at the balance and how is that being affected in your life. Now, the thing with Web 3.0, when we're going into this metaverse, going into virtual reality type experiences, because it's even more immersive, I think there's a tendency for it to be even more of an escape. And so a lot of these things we're talking about when we say imbalances, often what is happening is that people aren't just accidentally ending up this way, even though it might be less conscious, but it might be that they are preferring some kind of an escape. I don't want to deal with the work I have to do, so I'd rather distract myself with social media or with something else. And that's why it's often not about the specific technology itself, but it's just a new way of distracting, a new way from disconnecting from what we're feeling, so that could create an imbalance. So now with this type of metaverse and experiences that people can have, I could see the possibility of people escaping even more into this because it can seem even more like a real life, even though it's not a real life, they can unfortunately get lost and then choose it as a uh, type of an escape. There's a great book, I only saw the movie, Ready Player One, that looks into a future not too far in the future probably, where virtual reality is this very immersive thing and, and much more comprehensive. And we see people that prefer to live in this virtual world and avoid almost everything in the real world because of that. And so this is where you have to ask yourself, where is the balance or imbalance that's being created by this new thing? Or can I maintain the balance of my life while uh, you know, enjoying this new activity, relationship, whatever it might be? And then so the second one in some ways is related when I talk about connection, because I mentioned how we often get out of balance because we're disconnected. We want to disconnect from ourselves. But to me, we always have to look at whatever it is that we're using, especially with new types of technology. And is it contributing to my connection, not just to others, but also to myself? Is it increasing or decreasing that connection? So for example, texting can be a good example of this, where it actually might feel like it's creating connection, but it might create disconnection. I've had this experience, maybe you have too, where you might text with many different people in the course of a day. And there's some level of connection there, but it's not that deep. Usually in texting, it only can get to a shallow level. It only can go so far. So many people have this experience, especially you'll see in younger individuals where they'll text with like 30, 40 people and it's this constant stream of texting this person as soon as they finish someone else's text. Then there's group texts, this. It's just nonstop sending messages to one another. And so on the surface, it looks like a very social day. They're interacting with a lot of people, but I guess that's the problem. It's on the surface. The types of connections are so superficial that there isn't this deep feeling of connection that they will experience. And also with that type of nonstop type of messaging that's going on, it can feel very clearly like they're avoiding something 
first maybe some responsibilities, but also just feeling things that happen when they're not doing anything or even having more of a one-on-one type of interaction. And social media is the same thing. Most of us can find ourselves at some time during the day or week just mindlessly scrolling through our feed of whatever it is, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And it's not really like we're genuinely searching for something that is meaningful or it's something that we have to find or do. It's very clear that we're trying to disconnect from ourselves or we might not be aware of it, but that's often the case. We're using it as a disconnecting machine, not a connecting machine. Let me go on Instagram again because I don't want to feel my feelings or feel what's going on or face something I have to do that I don't have to face. I'd rather distract myself. So I'm disconnecting from myself. So we have to ask ourselves, is it leading to connection or disconnection? Because there is also possibilities for connection. People can meet, connect with people that they never met in any other way. It might even turn into an IRL in real life type of relationship or connection, but they can meet online. Or you find people who've had a similar experience than you, and that could be very meaningful. You thought you were the only one dealing with a certain type of issue, um, whether it's an identity type of thing or a medical or psychiatric, psychological type of issue. And you can go online and find people to connect with, and you don't feel as alone. You can create a type of online community. And this is definitely something that happens. So now with Web 3.0, as I mentioned, imbalance, I think is something we have to be aware of. I think it's very possible and lends itself for creating imbalances. People escape into this virtual world and prefer it over their real life, but the real life issues won't disappear and will continue to get worse if they're not faced. Similarly, with disconnection, people can go into this virtual world in a very a disconnected way and just want to have superficial interactions or just enjoy the anonymity or whatever it might be. But there's also potentials for connections and, and communication that might be very genuine. And it also might allow for some people that might be socially anxious, not that they should avoid facing that too, but let's say initially to, to connect with some people, to interact with people when they might be afraid to. Also during the pandemic, we saw that it was harder and it still is to be around people, especially in groups, um, in public or in real life. And so it could be nice to connect in some other way. So I think there are these potentials for connection that are out there as well. So as always, we want to look at the the balance of things or look at both sides of things. Even I've been doing more of these Twitter spaces. They're kind of like clubhouse rooms, but on Twitter, um, feel free to join me. I, I put them on my Instagram. Usually when I'm going to do them, I had one this morning. Um, as part of this this group that I'm with, Astromojis, that's a, a PFP NFT project. If you don't know what that means, you're probably like most people, and I didn't know much about that, and I'm still learning about it as well. Um, but we are doing these type of spaces just to allow for people to talk about mental health, mental health issues that they're going through, to talk about therapy and what it's like to go to therapy, different issues related to mental health. So generally, I, I share some things, but then it also becomes a conversation and people are sharing all sorts of experiences. I've had the opportunity to meet, again, in this virtual way uh, and hearing just their voices, but meet people from around the world and, and learn about their experiences. Next Tuesday, I'm going to do a room with someone, a uh, Twitter space, and, and she's doing portraits of individuals in psychiatric hospitals in Poland where she is to humanize these individuals, you know, people who are experiencing severe mental illness are often very 
much dehumanized by people, not seen as fully human, and because of that, their treatment can be as such that they don't get the type of d- dignity and respect, and especially the help that they uh, desperately need and deserve. And so it's wonderful that she's doing a project, Luna Voss, where she is painting these individuals to create you know, more of a humanized perspective, and I think that's wonderful. I would have more than likely never have heard of her, of, from her or of her had it not been for meeting her in these spaces. So I have to be aware of this balance myself. Could it create disconnection, escaping things, not meeting some other responsibilities? But when I'm experiencing these these spaces, these rooms, it's allowed for me to connect and learn things and and benefit from other people's stories and experiences and what's worked for them and hasn't worked for them in a wonderful way. So I just wanted to you know share this mindset about this and that we have to be careful because when we escape into these worlds, you know, uh, this type of a line came to me, you know, and we, we busy ourselves in the world of what ifs, we miss the beauty of what is right in front of us. When we stay in this what ifs, what can happen, what is it like, we miss the beauty of the things that are right in front of us all the time. And we want to make sure we don't do that. We want to make sure we experience things. And we can do things online that actually facilitate that too. But we want to make sure we never lose track of that, that our lives are to be lived fully and experienced fully. Don't live in the world of what ifs. Enjoy the beauty of what is right in front of you. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. back. So in this last segment, I wanted to talk about perfectionism. Um, And the person that gave me that recommendation, I kind of joked back saying, but what if I talk about it imperfectly? Um, Which is obviously a joke, because I definitely will talk about it imperfectly. And that's part of what what the problem is in that type of anxiety of not sure we're going to do it perfect. We unfortunately end up doing things at all, which also is relevant to other topics that I've talked about today. So to begin with, perfectionism is, uh, you know, we use it very, in this very casual way, oh, I'm a perfectionist, and and many people are. Uh, but unfortunately, we sometimes trivialize how important or severe it can be when people genuinely have perfectionism. It can be paralyzing and frightening and make everything very scary. And when I've seen it with clients, especially with younger clients, it's just heartbreaking. They can be so afraid um, to make a mistake, to not get things exactly right. And because of that, they are afraid to do everything. They're afraid to take risks. They're afraid to try things. And all of life is essentially this experience of avoiding or trying to avoid failure. And failure means even making a, a mistake if you get something wrong. And that's a very, very scary way to live. And the reason why I say it's also very serious is that uh, in recent years, I've seen more writing and research and uh, looking at how perfectionism actually can be a risk factor, a very big risk factor and often looked uh, overlooked risk factor for suicide. That generally, for me, when I'd heard of suicide or studying in graduate school, hopelessness was a big one, and it is, because if you feel like things are really bad and you also lose hope that they can get better, that either you can make them better or the environment or things will change, well, it can be understandable that you're more likely to go towards thoughts of suicide. But unfortunately, perfectionism is a characteristic that's very much overlooked 
for several reasons, or it can be a big risk factor. So to begin with, individuals who have perfectionism are less likely to seek out help because they don't want to acknowledge they have any problems or issues. And then, of course, sharing that with someone else or even asking for help makes them feel weak or stupid or I should be able to do it on my own. So sadly, they often won't ask for help either from friends or family or in a professional sense. So they will be suffering emotionally from the perfectionism itself and maybe other things, and they likely won't seek out help. So that's unfortunate. And so then this feeling of just, I should always be able to do things and do well, means that they're definitely going to get disappointed in themselves and their lives because they can't be in their life, can't be perfect. So a note to parents to just be so aware of this. That yes, it's good to encourage good values, hard work ethic, even doing well on things, you know, to appreciate that and support that. But to really, again, it's like there's a million things you have to think of as a parent, but one to be mindful of is, am I in any way promoting a perfectionistic mindset in my child and perfectionism? Because I think often parents think, well, if someone does something wrong, a kid does something wrong, you have to point it out. But I so often see kids that I'm working with that they already beat themselves up enough when they do something wrong. So it's not that you have to ignore it or pretend like it's good or that nothing has happened, but to realize you don't have to add more emotional intensity to whatever has happened or gone wrong. You know, sometimes you'll see a child who's, let's say, five years old and has an accident and wets themselves. They don't need any extra putting down. They know it's bad. They feel horrible. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. What they need from you is support and comfort to help get through that and to make them feel that they're okay that they had this accident. It's an accident. We make accidents and mistakes. That's okay. So parents have to be very aware of this. Even it's happened so many times on the air and, and even in therapy where they'll say, okay, well, tell me about, you know, like your 12-year-old son. Like, oh, he is just perfect. And it's interesting because it sounds like a compliment, but it gives me anxiety when they say my, my son or my daughter is perfect because that tells me it's not that they're perfect. Of course, they're not. They're human beings, but it's almost that there is this expectation or hope or wish or desire for that or somehow the, the child is presenting in that way that concerns me, that that's actually a big red flag rather than a positive thing. So Perfect is a, a really unfortunate word. Let me read a quote from you that I, I've come across recently that I think is quite wonderful related to perfectionism. This is from uh, John Steinbeck, the writer of Grapes of Wrath. And now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. And now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. I think it's so beautiful. Um, it captures it so wonderfully, the sense that once we take that burden away from ourselves that we have to be perfect, now we can actually be good. Because what we see happen so often is when people try to be perfect or think they have to be perfect, first of all, it'll make them perform worse. And also they just won't be good. They won't do a lot of things because, well, I can risk failing and risk doing something wrong. So why should I try? So what we see happening is unfortunately when perfectionism takes hold of us, Rather than life being something that we want to experience, to enjoy things, to have something happen, life becomes just about avoiding mistakes, avoiding failure, which means avoidance is the biggest thing that we experience. Another related concept comes from things like mindset. So you maybe have heard of a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. There's a book called Carol Dweck. Uh, who really is one of the people that came up with this concept of fixed versus growth mindset. And so 
a fixed mindset means that when we look at some kind of a behavior or some kind of achievement, we think that it's just coming from some innate talent. That's a fixed mindset. So I got an A on a test because I'm smart. I just have this level of intelligence and smartness that makes me get an A on a test. A growth mindset is more focused on recognizing that it's about the effort that's put into something that leads to success or failure or how well you do. So I got an A on a test because I studied hard. That's a very different type of a thing because the reverse is if I got an F on a test, if I have a, a fixed mindset, it's, well, I'm stupid. I'm not smart enough to do this thing. I have to just give up. Whereas if I have a growth mindset, if I get an F on a test, I'm like, oh, I definitely didn't try hard enough. If I try harder, I will do better. And so this is why parents, when you're talking with your kids, is another thing to be aware of is how you compliment them. And so now it might seem like we're being nitpicky. A lot of people will say, well, my mom or dad told me I was stupid and an idiot and ugly and all these mean things. And now you're telling me that when I say nice things to my kids, I'm saying the wrong nice things. And it's like, I get it. It could seem nitpicky, but it's being aware of the effect it can have on your kids when you compliment them or praise them in certain ways that it can have an effect. Because it sounds so nice, oh, you're so smart, you're a genius. And I know every parent from a young age thinks their baby is a genius, you know, they did this thing and I can't believe it. And really they do amaze us with what they do. Um, but we think, well, it sounds so nice. And it's another one of those ways where the opposite of something bad is not always so good. So yes, telling your kid they're stupid is horrible. I hope you never say anything remotely close to that to your child ever. But it doesn't mean always saying you're so genius, you're smart is going to be good either if you're not aware of the effect that could have by giving them a pressure. Oh, you got that right, you're smart. You got this right, you're smart. Because now it seems like getting it right is smart and getting it wrong is dumb. Whereas, yes, there is some connection there that someone who is intelligent will get, let's say, more types of questions right. But it's also that the effort is something that we want to focus on and emphasize because that's in their control. What you're good at or not good at, that innate talent is completely out of your control. You're just born with that. So when you're praising your child, it can be good to focus on the effort. And I've caught myself too working with kids saying, oh, that was so smart or you're so smart. But over time, I've focused more and more on that than when I've worked with kids and let's say tutoring or doing something that focus on their effort and how much they are trying. Or when they report on their grades, like, wow, you must have really worked hard if you got four A's and two B's. Way to go. You worked really hard. Because when you get that type of feedback, you are actually excited about challenges. And this is exactly what we see in the research. So when kids are praised for being smart, when they are successful on a task, and other kids are praised for working hard, when we now give them an opportunity to either do something that is as hard or even easier, or to try something more challenging, harder, the ones that were given the praise for being smart, the fixed mindset, uh, type of option, they're more likely to choose an easier task because it's so scary to be wrong. Now I'm no longer smart if I get it wrong, so let me choose something easier. But the, the growth mindset individuals, those are told, oh, you tried so hard, that's why you did well. They're much more likely to say, give me the more challenging problem. This is exciting. This is fun because getting it wrong is not so scary. It's actually fun to push myself to try something a little bit more difficult and see, see how things go. And even if I can't get it initially, I believe I can keep trying. And that's another thing we see is that people who have a growth mindset are more likely to try longer at a hard problem. A fixed mindset my, uh, type of a feeling is if I don't know it, I don't know it. There's no point to keep trying and they give up more quickly. 
or if they're studying something new and they don't get it, they go, ah, I just don't get it. I guess I'm, you know, I'm not smart enough to get it. I should give up. Whereas if you have a growth mindset, okay, I'm not getting it. Let me try it a different way or see if I can even get some help to, to explain it to me, but I know it's something I can do. So it can seem trivial to focus on what are the types of compliments you're giving your kids, but it's something you want to be very aware of. I see it with so many children that the parents, through very, very good intentions, have unintentionally put a strong pressure on their children to perform a certain way and to not make mistakes and to continue to make them proud. So if your child does get a bad grade, how you respond can be really important. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to celebrate it the same way you would a good grade, but it's trying to show them that it's okay and, you know, let's talk about it. And even when they get a good grade, talk about what happened. What do they think helped them do well this time? So it's not just, oh, you're smart, you got an A. It's like, wow, like, what do you think you did that was helpful? It's like, oh, I, I really studied this or I practiced this thing. Oh, that's really good. You tried hard. So it's focusing on the process much more than just some kind of talent or some kind of ability. Because unfortunately, once these things get in, uh, ingrained in us, it can be hard to shake. That feeling of making a mistake being so monumental, it can be very hard to shake. And so I work with families where it's become ingrained and now they're a teenager and they see their child is just freaking out about everything because as they get older, things get more challenging. Uh, and that's another thing that changes. Sometimes when you look at elementary school and things, if a child is very, very intelligent, there can be this possibility that they don't have to work that hard to do well. They can do well enough and the, the, the homework can be simple and it's quick and the tests they do don't involve long studying. You can kind of just know the stuff and be okay. But once you get slightly older, there's no way to do well without working hard. And so a child that has a fixed mindset and that perfectionism thinks, oh, I'm just not that smart anymore. This is where my smartness takes me. I can't go further than this. Whereas a child who has the growth mindset thinks, okay, I have to work harder now to do well. And so I see a lot of children that were that are very smart and intelligent, and then they get into high school and now they start panicking because it feels like they don't know how to do it anymore or they can't do it anymore. And this is where their story ends because they were smart and they're only smart up in this, until this point. So praising the process is much more important than praising the results. Even if you know, your, your child might get a decent grade or a bad grade, but they tried hard. Like, oh, you you really did study hard for this. Hmm, that's surprising. We can try different things, but I know you did study hard and I'm proud of you for studying hard because that was the effort you put in. Let's see what else we can try to see what we can do to see if your grade can get better or whatever we can do, but I'm proud of you for trying if you saw that they genuinely put in that effort. So we don't want to be so results focused, which we so often tend to be. Well, you got an A, good, and you're smart, whether than well, maybe they didn't try hard. So don't just look at your child's report card and grades. Think about and look at the type of effort they are putting in, because that's likely more important. Your eight-year-old might be getting all perfect grades or good grades. Even I said the word perfect there, but all really good grades in their school. Uh, but are they actually working hard or are they just not trying at all and learning that for me, school is something that I can just do and I never have to work hard at it, which means that once they do get to that point where the their intelligence doesn't carry the way anymore, they're going to feel like they're not smart and they're going to give up. So perfectionism is a very, very um, hurtful and, and sadly painful type of mindset for people to have. It's very easy to say, just stop doing it. But when it gets ingrained, it's very hard to change. It can, but it does take some time to acknowledge and accept that 
I will make mistakes. I can mis- make mistakes. I'm lovable despite making mistakes. It's part of being a human being, and that's more than okay. It's going to be expected that I should try things where I will make mistakes. And that's even something you can do. Sometimes with, with kids or with individuals who are perfectionistic, it could be good to do activities that are going to be done imperfectly, some type of art, especially if it's messy or might even not have a good final product. Don't worry about the final product, about the process. That can be you know, a, a good thing to try. Um, but realizing that once it's ingrained, it can be hard to break. Don't blame your child or your teenager if they feel that way. Try to help them be more okay with it. And also in looking at ourselves to recognize you're going to make mistakes. You're not going to be perfect, just like I did this segment imperfectly, but that's okay. We have to go ahead. We have to keep trying. We have to keep doing things. So thank you to uh, uh, the person who gave me that recommendation for this last segment, and thank you to all of you listening out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Hope you have a wonderful day.